Disclaimer. This podcast contains a story or two of war crimes that some listeners may find upsetting. people welcome to jcv art studio my show here yeah it's my show i'm I'm owning this (laughs) today i have mark creedon the author of the historical fiction novel caught between two devils mark and i have been trying over the last number of months and i have to say thank you mark for your patience um, to get him on the podcast And I'm so glad he's here because this is a very important book. And just to give you a little bit about Mark, he worked in child welfare and family services agencies for 38 years until he retired in 2013. Fantastic, Mark. Thank you. And Mark and I are going to talk about Caught Between Two Devils. Like I said, it's a historical fiction novel but it's based on real live events. And I tell you, Mark, we need more books like your book now. We need them more than ever Mm. with the rise in indifference and intolerance. And I am so tired of hearing about countries wanting to invade other countries. You know, that's why Mm -hmm. I'm I'm really glad you're here. Mm. I think the timing is perfect. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. As I said, the only my only problem right now is it's really cold in Toronto today, and it's going to get colder tomorrow. But other than that, things are going very well. Good. And and I, I hear that you you've recovered well from your booster shot, and uh, and that your renovations are going well. So that's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> it's 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 not done until I get that occupancy permit. <laughs> right. So first, with your novel, caught between two devils, the cover is of the book is lovely and i know i had uh an acquaintance of yours um did you want did you want me to show it does that matter sure yeah gordon mott has a beautiful cover on his book and i want i love the story about that book that that cover so tell our readers who who like they're going to get the video portion of this interview about the cover and how did it how did you decide on that cover well, it was really my wife that picked it out. And my wife did two wonderful, well, she did a lot of things, uh, being a great feedback for different things and telling me what was realistic and what wasn't. But she also was the one that came up with the cover. And she also is the one that came up with the title because I had a terrible, I'm not good at titles. She's the one that came up with it. Uh, 
and with the cover, with the cover, um, is this is Kal Kaliningrad, which is a port on the Baltic. Uh, was used to be part of Lithuania. It's the only part of Lithuania that the Soviets did not uh, give back to the Lithuanians when they pulled out in 1991, because it's they consider it such a vital uh, port. Uh, for military purposes and for commercial purposes, to have something on the on the Baltic, and uh, the uh, sorry, that's just a, I'm a type one diabetic, and it's a little beeper telling me I'm supposed to do a little test. Okay. Derek, oh, I got rid of it. Okay, uh, you're going to be okay. We can pause. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. It's just it, it's obsessive. Okay. But uh, uh, but uh, the thing I think that's most interesting about this is first of all, Antonis, Chris's father, is the one that took the photograph. This is in the middle of the Second World War. He's a prisoner, and yet he's got a picture of there's there's Yedviga. She's closest to the soldier, and there's his sister Maria, and there's the Wehrmacht soldier. This is the guard. Well, this picture of the background of showing the port and everything like that. Uh, this would have been vital, great information. The British and the Americans would have loved this for bombing purposes, oh <laughs> but, but somehow, somehow this soldier liked Antonis so much he allowed him to take the photograph. That is amazing. What is it? Antonis was such a charmer. He was such a wonderful man. One of the things about him was he, first of all, he was an electronic engineer, trained as an electronic engineer. He could do anything. He could do plumbing, electrical, mechanical, you name it. So he was always fixing things for people. So people liked him. Yeah. Plus, he had a wonderful, often people who are really good at things aren't necessarily good with people. Yeah. He was good with people. He was good with things. He was just an amazing person. But, um, uh, but this is just a piece of the barge. That they were on the barge was roughly. Yadviga was trying to remember; she might be a little off, but she thought it was about 15 meters long, six meters wide, and they just they just had their stuff here, and they had tarps, and it was had like a V shape at the front, uh, but other than that, it was just like a giant raft, and they were being pulled along the Namulus River uh, by a, a small troop carrier, and uh, they, um, you know, they. Where this was early April in Northern Europe, so it would be cold, and when it rain, they were they were kind of exposed, yeah. and they're they're actually um, it was quite re, and there was what there was probably about fifteen of them on that barge plus the the Wehrmacht guard. Jeez, okay, I'm so glad I asked that question. I'm so glad. So, <laughs> tell our listeners what "Caught Between Two Devils" is about, roughly, like just a, a well, summary. There's roughly different themes, but I think probably the most important theme is for the reader to understand and learn about um, forced labor in the Second World War, especially in Eastern Europe, um, where because the Germans thought they were going to knock the Soviets out of the war fairly quickly, and they had tremendous success at first with uh, uh, Barbarossa, they, they, they captured three million Soviet soldiers, plus they killed millions of others. But the Soviets fooled them and regrouped and started fighting back. And then the Germans started losing lots of people, too. The Soviets were probably still losing more, but the Soviets had way more people. So the Germans had to repopulate their army with all these losses. So they had to take people who were now working, doing valuable jobs in Germany, and send them off to the front. Well, those jobs had to be replaced. So they started taking people from occupied countries. Well, that's exactly what happened. To Yadviga, Antanas, to Maria. Yeah, yeah. Antanas was put in charge of, he was made the held head mechanic in Elbing. He was already doing that in Kaunas, so they just moved him to Elbing, Germany. Uh, Yadviga was a good sewer, seamstress, so they put her in charge of, not in charge of, she was sewing 
uh, winter clothes for the, the German troops on the Eastern Front. And Maria, they put her in, you know, her job was uh, cleaning things, like cleaning the latrines, cleaning the, the barracks and that kind of thing. So that's what they had to do for, the, they, this was April of 44, they uh, got there and they didn't escape until February of 45. Wow, wow, okay. See, yeah, and I'm just thinking grade 12, Mr. Little history class, I remember him saying that one thing the German soldiers weren't prepared for was the Russian winter. And that's, mm -hmm. that's where they suffered fat fatalities as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how did you get the idea? Like, what was it? What was this? Like, I always say the spark, but what mm -hmm. made you want to write this book? Well, it was be being repeatedly hit over the head by the same idea. Is every January fifth, Yadviga would tell the story uh, how she and Antanas got married under perilous circumstances. Yeah. Antanas and Maria, I don't think I ever heard a word from them all the time I knew them about the war or the time of the war, but yet Viga was more open about it. And their, their uh, story, their uh, marriage is worth a short story of its own because Antanas was a man, he was a little, he was about six years older than Yadviga. And when they first met, he, he decided with the first time they met that this was the woman for him for life. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and they stayed married for over 60 years. And it was a real romance, but she, of course, was young. She was only 18 at the time. So she asked to wait for a while for a decision. So she waited for a while. And then uh, when she said yes, well, that's all of a sudden when the Soviets and the Germans together invaded Poland and, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Germans started in September 1st coming from the West. And then on September 17th, they saw Russian tanks coming in. And they welcomed them. The, the Polish soldiers welcomed them. They thought they were coming to help them to fight the Germans. Instead of that, they got machine gunned uh, oh, because there was a secret pact between Hitler and Stalin. Yeah. So one of the first things, of course, the Russians who took over um, the eastern part of Poland and Lithuania put a ban on weddings and all church services. The reason for that is because they correctly figured out that people wouldn't just go to Mass. After Mass, they'd be busy in the basements trying to figure out uh, terrorist and, uh, you know, sort of counter-revolutionary kind of tactics. Uh, so then finally, then the Germans in, in, you know, betrayed their allies and attacked them in Operation Barbarossa and pushed them out of Pol Eastern Poland and Lithuania. And then they took over. The first thing they did is put a ban on church services. Uh, so then Antonis was getting fed up with this. He'd been waiting for years to, to marry this wonderful woman. And so finally, he talked her father, Mr. Sosnowski, into having a special um, marriage in a chapel, not a big church. He kind of correctly figured out that the Gestapo would be watching the big cathedrals, the big churches, but not a little chapel. So they had this, and they had set it up so that it would be uh, Jadwiga's parents, her two sisters, uh, and Tanis would come alone, his own family. They would do a civil ceremony later. Problem was, he was working in Kaunas. Uh, the wedding was going to be in Vilnius, which are about 100 kilometers apart from each other. Uh, he couldn't tell his boss, who was a German, nice man, but he couldn't tell him he was going to a wedding or he'd be put himself and even his boss into danger. So he had to work a full day. So it was going to be an, an evening mass. He, he left after work in his little car. He had this little car called Zabka, which is the Polish diminutive for a, a small frog, like because it was green. Yeah. It was a little Fiat, basically. 
And so he's driving along and then a, a winter blizzard comes along and blizzards in that part of the world can be really something. And he's going along and he's a good driver. In fact, he, he was a driver and instructor when he was going through university and he gets blown off when, when, when a car looks like it's going to crash into him coming the other way. He correctly corrects to get out of the way, but now he goes into a skid, winds up into a ditch of tremendous amount of snow. Doesn't know what he's going to do. He's already an hour late for the wedding. Uh, meanwhile, Yadviga and her parents and her, and her sisters are waiting in this little chapel. And every time they hear a creek, they wonder if it's the Gestapo or whether it's Antanas or what the heck's going on. Um, so he's in fit to be tied. And so what he does is he just starts praying. There's nothing else he can do. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, a big bus starts coming towards, towards him and uh, coming towards Kaunas. And sure enough, uh, the, 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 I've forgotten the gentleman's name, we'll call him Vitas, uh, was the driver, had been one of his students when he was teaching driving. Oh, and wow. He always, oh, wow. He had always told Vitas, when you're driving, always keep a chain in your bus because you never know when you or somebody else is going to need to be pulled out of a ditch or something like that. Yeah. So this did. He was there. And the bus was packed with people who had been celebrating uh, Christmas in Vilnius. And they're all from the same Catholic church. So uh, when when Vitas comes out, into the, and it was a howling blizzard, the snow was blind. So they didn't recognize each other at first. But when they got closer, they recognized who each other were. They embraced. Uh, Vitas said, what can I do to help? And Antanas said, I'm trying to go to a wedding. Uh, please don't tell the people on the bus because that's strictly against the law. But my my little car is in the ditch. Have you got a chain? She says, yes. So they hooked up the chain to both cars. Uh, and then they got the 30 people out of the bus. And they all started with the, as Vitas was pulling the bus backwards, the people were pulling and they all started singing spontaneously. It's kind of fun. Yeah. The Russian, the Volga boat song. <laughs> da, 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 da. And they all started pulling like this. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, little Zabka starts coming out of the out of the snow, looking like a, a whale that's breaching kind of thing. <laughs> and they got out. And then Antanas tried to start the car. It wouldn't start. Yeah. Tried again. It wouldn't start. He prayed a little bit more. Started. Little Zabka started purring. That's and awesome. all the people cheered. And, and wished him well. Then he heads off to um, Vilnius, and he's he's now. By the time he arrives, he's two and a half hours late. late. Yeah. They were within about fifteen minutes. Of the priest was very nice. He was calming everybody. He allowed. He brought them something to eat and drink. And um, being strictly Catholic, uh, Chris's mother was worried about are they supposed to be eating before communion. He says, "Look, these are strange times. Yeah. We'll let that go." He kind of kept everybody calm, but they were all just about to go because they figured eventually somebody would have noticed the lights on and maybe started looking. Yeah. But then they hear the door open and they don't know whether it's the Gestapo or the SS or Antanas. It turns out to be Antanas. <sighs> well, Yadviga was so mad at him yeah. that she goes running off into the 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 the, the, the uh, uh, where the dressing area and she won't come out. Because she she had always said maybe we could just wait a little longer if we get married. And it was Antonis that insisted they wanted to get married now, and she she wouldn't come out. So far, so uh, Mr. Sosnowski he went to try and talk her into coming out, and uh, she wouldn't come out for him either. Uh, so finally, her sister Visha, who's a no nonsense person, yeah. she just pounded on the door and said, "Yadviga, this man has just 
risked his life and driven 100 kilometers in a blizzard to come and marry you. Get your ass out here now. We're going to get married. (laughs) (laughs) So she did. (laughs) So so you'd be good. Yeah. We'd tell this story every year. Yeah. Uh, And Thomas would be kind of embarrassed and kind of go off and get something to eat. And the the others were busy chatting. uh, But I was always listening because I thought this is really different. How many, how many people get married under these kinds of circumstances? And I started learning and I'd ask some questions. I started learning, you know, later that they were forced labor. Yeah. All the kinds of things I later found out that they escaped. And I started thinking, well, at least for the family, at least for my children and and, and Peter's, my, my brother-in-law's children, they should at least know this whole story. Yeah. And, the, and then when I went to um, University of Toronto to do create one thing I realized after I finished as executive director and I retired I figured uh, well I can write a pretty good funding proposal but that's very different than writing a novel and, and I always remember what Margaret Atwood said she always said at a party she met a, a doctor that was retiring and she asked him what he was going to do and he said he was going to write uh, a novel and she said oh uh, when, when I retire I'm going to become a brain surgeon <laughs> <laughs> so, so the idea being that there's more to writing a novel than just having a story you have to know a little bit about it yeah. so I took a bunch of courses at, at U of T and I had the same professor several times Alexandra Leggett who's a, a, a good author herself and a great teacher yeah. and she always got when you'd write certain things and submit them and you, your classmates would give feedback and etc and people started saying most Canadians don't know much about the Eastern Front most Canadians oh. don't know a little about the forced labor you need to share this story yeah. beyond just your immediate family which kind of got me in a little bit of trouble with my wife chris because chris really liked the story and she was really good for sharing it with the family yeah. but similar to antana samaria she would prefer to keep it just with the family and not go beyond but when i talked to Adviga about this very thing because yeah it's, it's real she's a real person Oh, yeah. I just want to make sure the listeners know, yeah, Vika is real oh, and Antanas. And so is Antanas and so is Maria. Yeah. Like, like I would say 70% of this book is is completely accurate. Yeah. The parts about Yadviga, Antanas, and Maria, it's about 90% yeah. accurate. Some of the characters I had to invent, they're composite characters, because they did interact with other people in, in the, the work camps. Yeah. So there was people that were Ukrainian, there was ones that were Belarusian, there was ones that were Russian, German, uh, even an American that was there. Uh, I wanted their stories to get across, but Maria couldn't remember, at least Yadviga couldn't remember all their names or exact. So I just did a lot of research on what was a typical thing that happened to a Ukrainian or a Belarusian and put that into the character. So that part's kind of made up. But the, the things that Antanas and Yadviga and Maria did, with the only exception being is when they would meet at lunch hour and discuss what's happening in the rest of the world. And, and uh, Sergeant Shooty would share what he got on the crystal radio ship, radios, uh, radio. Yeah. That I made it up because I had to figure out a way to inform the reader what was happening in the outside world. Mm-hmm. That part's made up. But everything else that Yadviga and Antanas and Maria did, uh, the most heroic things that they did, the most strenuous things they did, they're real. Well, and the scene, like the scene which I, which I like with your writing is when they're going to do the escape and Antanas is driving this military transport truck through the work camp gates. Mm-hmm. 
and his friend Peter. It was just, it was such a beautiful scene because, and I saw it. And it's a scene that I still think about. And I have read this book like over, I don't know how many weeks ago. And, you know, Peter salutes him. He salutes Antanas. And you, the reader just knows the danger and the risks these people are taking. And mm-hmm. Peter says to him, God be with you. You know, and that scene, it, like I said, it needs to be in a movie. And, uh, and when you realize these are real people and, mm-hmm. um, I was just wondering, you know, was there any scene, any one scene that really st- struck you or I, d- I don't want to say the word favorite, but was like a favorite to write? Yeah. Well, the scene you just described Yeah. as I. As I was writing it, it brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. 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 There was a real bond between Antonis and Peter. Yeah. They treated each other like brothers. Yeah. Uh, Peter was very deferential. He, Peter was put himself at risk. He, he could have escaped with them. Yeah. But as he explained to them, if a German patrol ever finds them and finds out he's a deserter, they're all dead on the spot. Yeah. They had cover stories when they escaped, uh, where they had, and Peter had arranged that through a friend to have false papers saying they're supposed to be going to Bavaria to help with the farm, etc. It was risky whether those papers would work or not. But if he'd been there as a German, as a German soldier or as a deserter, yeah. that would have been it. Yeah. So he yeah. deliberately said, "No, I can't go with you." And uh, so that was certainly a, a powerful scene. The, the the wedding scene which I described uh, as Antonis fell into the ditch and had to get out and that's another one um, that they're the actual when they get pulled over by the German patrol after they've escaped from the thing and the Edviga faints and Maria has to prop her up and pretend she's uh, you know pregnant yeah. uh, that's another scene another scene of course uh, is the one where um, the uh, Edviga's boss as a seamstress. Uh, is basically hitting on her knowing full well she's married but he doesn't care because he's got total power over her uh and she somehow is trapped because if she just just this is him he could have her skinned alive if he wants to uh but on the other hand if she gives in to him what's that do to her and what does that do to her uh, sense of spirituality what does that do to her relationship with her husband would her husband try and retaliate and then get killed? Uh, these are all going through her mind, and she's almost paralyzed in fear. And then she prays. Yeah. Yeah. And then it comes to her that this man had been once a, a, a heroic Panzer Division leader, yeah. but because he made the mistake of having an affair with uh, Goebbels' uh, mistress and got caught, mm-hmm. uh, that he was demoted to corporal and put into a meaningless looking job where he's in charge of a bunch of people making uniforms. Um, his ego is really hurt. Yeah. So she somehow got the insight that this man isn't looking for sex. He's looking to have his ego stroked. Yeah. yeah. So she yeah. said to him, Corporal Schmidt, I know you have the power of life and death over me. Yeah. But I also know you're too much of an officer and a gentleman. To abuse that power. Well, she elevated him several steps, yeah. made his day. Yeah. 
Smart. He could take that elevation away by yeah. continuing to force her to have sex, or he could just walk away. Yeah. He yeah. chose to walk away. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So you have so many incredible scenes. And I'm just wondering, how did you decide? Like, how, how did you, like, I'm, there's, you and I know there are others, there are more scenes than what makes it into the book. Mm-hmm. So did you, I guess I'm, I was thinking again about this last night and I thought, so like, I thought, okay, so how did Mark decide which scenes, you know, this is in my head. And I thought, well, A, he'd want scenes that would move the story along. But I thought, mm-hmm. but I'm still, I'm still very curious. How did you p- kind of pick and choose? Well, fortunately, I had a lot of readers uh, as I was going through different drafts and I was going, I was taking creative writing courses. And, and, and so I was getting a lot of feedback from people. And one of the strong feedbacks I got was uh, the story of, of Maria, Antonis's sister, and the romance that she had with the guard, Peter. Yeah, Peter. Yeah. People were fascinated with that. And they kept saying, you've got to, got to write more about that. You've got to put more scenes in about that. Yeah. Uh, the relationship between Peter and Antonis, the romance between Antonis and, and Jadwiga, yeah. uh, the, the, um, all those things. So eventually I started getting more. Eventually I had this book up to 400 pages. It's wow. now about yeah. 210, I think, um, uh, or 250, I guess. Um, but then Antonis Shaleka, who is head of creative writing at Humber College, and he, uh, he uh, is also a renowned writer and published writer himself, he said, you've got to cut this thing in half. And so I did. So it was very painstaking. Some of it was just a matter of doing the same scenes, but cutting them down. Sometimes it was eliminating whole scenes. Like there was a whole stretch where this is after the war when they were in the American Red Cross camps. For some reason, they had to tr- take a truck to some American rangers that were training in the Swiss mountains kind of thing. And then while they're there, they had to wait. They had a little mini holiday. They had skis and they got to play around and they had to cut that whole thing out. Um, There's some things I just had to cut out, but it was mostly the feedback I got from Alexander Leggett, the students, but also I got my friend who's a writer, Glenn Carley, to look at it. My editor, Jan Severbny, uh, Megan Beast from Iguana Books, the editor, my friend, Jane McNulty, who also did a pro bono editing, they all gave me feedback what they thought were the powerful scenes. And and then by deduction, if I wasn't hearing about some other scenes, they're the ones that could be reduced or they could be eliminated. So I don't know if I did it right or not, but that's no, that's how it, I did it. It's great. And I'm just giving you the heads up, Mark, um, where we are currently renting. <laughs> I hear lots of little feet and furniture moving upstairs. So if my <laughs> dog gets upset, I will calm him down. We will okay. pause. You, you do what you have to do. I'm just giving you the heads up. So far, he seems to be What kind of a dog do you have? He's a mini schnauzer with lots of attitude, but oh, uh, very cute, very cute. He uh, he's so loyal to us. He is okay. so loyal. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing, see, I guess the other thing I have to mention this because my I know my sisters listen to my podcast, and what struck me, see, is my mother was about twenty one when she left Hungary. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing, false mm-hmm. passports, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and we will get further into this as, as we go along. Um, she was saying it was after the war. And she goes, during the war, they feared the Germans. 
And she also said, if she used to tell us, if you heard the bombs, that was good. That means you didn't get hit. And um, she said it was after the war. She goes, we feared the Russians. And she goes, and, and I'm just going to say that. And I'm not trying mm-hmm. to offend anyone mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. category, but those were those times. And she said they, they had to leave. They left. And it was for her. I remember her, what she told us escape plan was they were on the bus. And I can't remember if it was a friend or a family member. But the look, the friend or family member looked at my mother and she said, when those soldiers board this bus to check our papers, if they take me off of here, she goes, you don't know me. And she mm-hmm. goes, just as if they take you off here, I don't know you. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it just, it blows my mind that yeah. this is what they yeah. were living with. Yeah. And my mom always used to say, she said, we knew that once we crossed that Austrian border, the Hungary Austrian border, mm-hmm. she goes, once we were in Austria, we were okay, right? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah, because this leads into like they have this escape plan. And that's what the reader learns about. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I am on the edge of my seat. And who do they invite? Who do they don't invite? Because mm-hmm. they can ha- like they can escape with like seven or ten women. Is that it takes seven plus themselves? Yeah, that's what will fit. By the time you put everything into the truck, including some food and diesel yeah. fuel and things, and the, and a small amount of luggage, that's all the room they have. And as I'm reading it, you know, they meet at the tr- like, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to say yeah, Vega. Mm-hmm. They're at the bus. And two other women show up and one has a child. And as I'm reading it, I'm just like, what are you doing? Where are you? Who are you? You know, because they find out about the skate plan, yeah. right? So tell, like, tell me about and that. You, and you know, the, the, the backstory to that too is the Germans were just as af- afraid as yeah. as the, the prisoners were yeah. uh, because the Red Army was crushing the German army at this point and they were moving in and there was so much hatred between the Germans and the Russians at this time. It was bad enough if you were a, an American or British prisoner of war, but they basically followed the Queensbury rules. There were no Queensbury rules between the Russians and the Germans. There was just slaughter of each. There was just atrocity after atrocity. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Soviets lost 27 million people in the Second World War. At the time, Canada's population was 10 million. Jeez. Uh, uh, and uh, 8 million of those were soldiers. The other 19 were civilians. Yeah. Uh, so the hatred was unbelievable. The Soviets were there not just to win territory, but to have vengeance. And there was a, in several incidences where German women were crucified against barn doors, raped and then crucified against barn doors. Well, these two women sure as hell didn't want this happening to them. Yeah. And and the one woman certainly didn't want her ch- children to be orphans or or potentially killed. So they were desperate to get out, just as desperate as everybody else was to get out. Yeah. So Antanas was really mad because he didn't know how, how in the hell he's going to accommodate all this. Yeah. And he was blaming Yadviga and Maria for this, but they hadn't. It was just that these women had somehow overheard a conversation that Yadviga had probably had because the walls were very thin. There was not yeah. a lot of privacy. <laughs> they had found out and they wanted to get out. And so finally, Yadviga convinces her husband that says these women are desperate to get out. And do you want them yelling and screaming at the guards to stop us as we leave? So yeah. then finally he starts calming down. And then he comes up with a good idea. 
he decides that they, they take all the luggage out and strap it to the top of the, the uh, of the truck and maria has to climb up there and do all the the, the rope fitting and everything like that hoping she doesn't crash through the the canvas yeah. uh, but he guides her and she does it and um and they, so they managed to do it and then the now that now the 10 now there's 13 no there's 14 of them now uh taking off and um they and of course what uh, the reader finds out is they've got enough diesel to get them to a certain distance but eventually they run out of diesel and they have to figure out how to find diesel how to find food how to find shelter because it was very cold so it would be like kind of dealing with the winter i'm experiencing today only they got no particular accommodations to look after and they and so that the teamwork between them becomes crucial they can't be fighting amongst themselves they have to they have to figure things out it's survival it's just trying mm-hmm. it's survival hey yeah well the other thing and there are some lighter moments in this book too and we, we will get to into that but I, it was interesting because i had like i said um I have just interviewed Gordon Mott, mm-hmm. and we talked about his second novel, The Angels of Klaipeda. Klaipeda being a city in Lithuania. Yes. And then beautiful city. It's like a. It's like a. It's like being in the Caribbean. Oh. It's, it's a wonderful beaches. Wonderful. Okay, and then your book. You're writing about you know the relationship between Poland and Lithuania. And his book has the, the it just is something that just kind of dawned on me. His title has angels in it. <laughs> yours has devils in it. And I thought, okay, was this planned? Because, it, you know, it, it, you know, yeah. No, yeah. I'm afraid that was just serendipity. That wasn't artistic genius. We just, uh, but uh, of course it was Chris that came up with the title because yeah. uh, one of the central themes of the book is, of course, they're just as, as with your own parents having to deal with uh, both the the Nazis and the communists. Well, that's certainly Lithuania and Poland's parallel. And uh, it was hard to tell which devil was was worse. Yeah, yeah. Now, Jadwika, she becomes the wife of Antanas. Yes. And her family, when she's a teenager, and this was was like a a lighter moment. So they are, (laughs) they're crossing the river and they're leaving Lithuania to go back to Poland because the people of Lithuania, they're not accepting them. The girls are having, you know, they're having a rough time at school and there is a man who helps them. <laughs> and he says, you know, like, cause the river it's, 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 it's getting deeper. Right. And the man says to them, look at what the cow is doing. Cause they're taking the cow too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, like to me, I was thinking this is a light bulb moment, you know, because an animal will find the safety. So mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, the, the background of that is ironically, even though Lithuania and Poland had been friends and allies for hundreds of years, in the 19th century, like I, the, the Swedes and the Russians and the Germans kept pushing and pushing against it. And eventually they broke that Confederacy down and they took chunks of things. Poland fared a little better than Lithuania. Lithuania got really taken over by the Russians. But then after the First World War, the Polish army pushed the Russians out of Lithuania and Poland. And of course, the Lithuanians were thrilled with this. This is great. But they rewarded themselves by giving themselves Vilnius, which was the capital of Lithuania. 
so that at the time it's kind of ironic if if people read it and they'll say Vigo is uh, you know that, that uh, Vilnius is being called Vilno and it's po part of Poland it doesn't seem to make sense but for, there was about a, a you know a few decades where that was the case and so uh, there was a lot of animosity be kind of like the relationship between the United States and Canada most of the time we're we're allies but there's sometimes when the Americans do something that really annoy the Canadians well it was kind of like that for the Lithuanians are the little brother and Poland's the big brother and uh, so. As you pointed out, uh, the girls were being treated very badly at the school. Uh, 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 Anna, his, uh, Piotr's wife, was being treated badly at work. Uh, he was okay because he was an independent businessman, but he realized for his family's sake, they got to get out. But the irony was the Lithuanian government had a thing where they didn't, they feared Lithuanians suddenly pulling out and taking their money and leaving. So they had, a, they banned them from being able to leave. Yeah. So they're damned if they stayed, damned if they left. So they had to secretly get out. And so they had to, that's why they were going to cross the Naminus River at night, but really didn't have much understanding. They didn't know the river or where it was. And, as, and the, the, the purpose of that scene was to show uh, three things. First of all, to show the degree of rejection and fear that the family, the Sosnowski family had, so to motivate them to take such a risk, because Jadwiga was only three years old at the time when they were trying to get across this river. And, um, but the other part was that not all Lithuanians were that bad that Vitas here is a Lithuanian risking his life yeah. to help this these strangers, these Polish strangers that he, that he never met before. And then the third one is just the magic of how animals can find a way yeah. and how and the intelligence of humans that recognize this gift that, that animals have so that yeah. it they get it safely across the river. It was great. It was great. And like I said, it was a, a lighter moment. And um yeah, and like your dialogue even. I mean, so with the conversations between Antanas and Jan, who who is the manager, right, of the mm -hmm. transit system. Yes, yeah. Where, where Antanas works. And the dialogue that grabbed my attention, and I think of it as just fantastic, is, uh, you know, Jan says to Antanas, you're just some poor Lithuanian who can't even get married because of Adolf and Joe. And I read that and I thought, bam. <laughs> oh man, that was good. You know? So and of course that was one of the motivators that made Antonis so driven that he was going to finally get married. Yeah. <laughs> come hell yeah. come high water. Yeah. So let's talk about Jan, because you had mentioned earlier about composite characters. So He's a composite character based on there was a real person that Antonis met in Ukraine, but his name was probably different than Jan. Some of the family circumstances he had, the family he lived in was different. But one of the things that was true was that he shared a lot about what had happened to Ukrainians uh, before the war at the hands of Stalin. So I had to, because uh, things were so dangerous and so perilous at the time, I had to come up with the circumstances. Why would this man who just, recently met Antanas, why would he share these things? He could be a, uh, you know, a, a Russian or a German spy or is it something like that? He could turn him in. So I had to let them do, both of them do some serious drinking. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even though neither, neither one of them was normally a drinker, they did some serious drinking. And then Jan opened up and he basically somehow... There was something about Antanas. 
that people could trust. Yeah. He was, yeah. He was a good man. He was a competent man. He was an honest man. And somehow Jan, who was a similar kind of man, figured that out. Uh, but he still had to worry about serious consequences that could happen to him. The alcohol took some of those inhibitions away. And then he was able to follow his intuitive feeling yeah. and shared with Antanas what had happened. And of course, that's a way for me to let the reader know than the devil Hitler. Okay. And Mark, we've just had a um, climatic moment here, right when you were going to deliver the the best line, our internet cut out for a minute. So <laughs> I, you said, so if you don't mind repeating a bit, I the last repeat I heard was about, um, you know, the, the, the drinking between the two and Antanas, he then went by his instincts. And then yeah. you cut out. Okay, well, I was just saying, Jan has to worry yeah. about, he's just met this man, Antanas, but he, but there was something about Antanas yeah. that was honest and good and competent. And yeah. Jan's instincts where I could trust him, but he still was had to be a little bit reserved. Yeah. But with the drinking, some of those reservations go away and he followed his instinct. Yeah. His instinct was to trust Antanas and he felt he needed to tell him what had happened to his family. He'd been carrying this burden for a long time. Yeah and how 8 million Ukrainians were starved to death because Stalin wanted to sell the wheat so that he could industrialize Russia, and who cares what happens to the Ukrainians. And it's kind of ironic what we're facing today. That's why I feel this podcast happening now is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, so important. Okay. So this may be a bit of a, an emotional question here in the sense that I am so wanting to know have Anton, did Antanas and Jan, are they still around um, or have their children read this book? And I have to say thank you to your wife, Chris, for, for saying, okay, let, you know, agreeing to sharing this story because it's an amazing story. Well, Jan is a composite character, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah. no idea. I go. But Antanas, yeah. <laughs> Antanas died in, no, sorry, Maria died first. She died in November of 2008. Uh, yeah, Antanas did not follow her long. He, he died in January of 2009. Okay. He was 94, but but he died then. Um, uh, Aunt Maria was much younger, but she she um, died of uh, you know died with her in her family. Yadviga lived for uh, you know another um, what another five years. Uh, didn't die till two, August of 2014. Okay. Um, but the book itself was not published until 2019. Yeah. So none of them, Yadviga um, certainly knew what was going to go into the book uh, and, and, and appreciated it, um, but none of them got to read it. But, but as I said, Chris has ambivalent feelings about it. She, yeah. she certainly likes the story, yeah. but was not so sure about sharing it beyond the family. But her brother, Peter, who's who's the only one of the younger generation who's in the story because he's two years old when this when the story ends uh he loved the book he thought it was great and and his two children michael who's michael is the professor now uh and amy uh both really liked it yeah. and my own yeah. chris and my uh, children laura and paul really liked it too yeah it's a great story it's a great story and i'm like I said, thankful that 
you wrote it because it is very important. Yeah. Even just also showing the human spirit mm -hmm. and surviving and helping one each one each other. Mm -hmm. like, like, you know, we need more of that. We need pe more people helping each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It, it, well, one of the proudest moments I had when I was doing um, COVID-19 has really cut my sales. I was doing really well at selling. I was going around to various church groups and doing readings and selling. I was selling 40 and 50 books at a, at a reading. It was Good. really a lot of fun. Yeah. But then when COVID-19 came, that ended. Couldn't do it. Um, but when I did one of my first readings, uh, my daughter, uh, Laura, was there. And when we got to usually a typical in a reading, it, it, the, the, I think the most interesting part is the questions and answers what people have. And uh, Laura got up and just thanked me. Because she had had lots of years to get to know her grandparents and, and love them dearly. But she didn't know very much about any of this kind of thing. Yeah. She knew them. She knew their story after they got to Canada. Okay. She did not know their story from before they got to Canada. Yeah. So yeah. It, it made it complete. And, you know, I heard years and years and years ago, I was having a conversation with someone and this was an individual who was quite a bit younger and i'll give it that this individual was in their teens and it had to do with remembrance day mm -hmm. and this individual had said to me you know well i don't know why we have to keep hammering on about remembrance day mm -hmm. we know we know about the wars and i was just floored Mm -hmm. And it, maybe it's because I know of my mom's story. I know of mm -hmm. my dad who fought in the war. And I just thought, we, we have to keep remembering. Mm -hmm. We cannot ever go back there. And mm -hmm. that, it, it, you know, and so that's why even like now, like I said, it's, you, these stories are so important, you know. And well, there was an article just in the Toronto Star this morning where a person was saying, some recent surveys of high school students in North America for the United States and Canada said about a third of them doubted the validity of the Holocaust. Oh, no, no. Because it's just, you know, yeah. it, it, so it just speaks to your point of how important it is to keep telling the story. Yeah. And it's like that old adage, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Yes, yes. And, and that's... Uh, I mean, look at what Vladimir Putin's doing these days. Yes. It certainly yes. looks similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so winding it up here, are you planning on writing more books? It sounds like you have material for more books. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm in the, the research and the outline. I'm big on writing outlines and then changing them yeah. uh, uh, for uh, a book, this time about my own parents and uh, and their parents. And I think in the 20th century, and in, in switching the site from Europe to Canada, uh, in the first half of the 20th century, I think the four big, big items that affected Canadians the most were World War I, the Spanish flu, uh, the Great Depression, and World War II. And my family experienced all four of those things in, in significant ways. So again, just as with it was Antanas Shalika actually that taught me what he said when I was uh, doing the uh, 
writing the story and um, I was getting most of my information straight from Yadviga. And he said, well, that's great. You know, he says, but you somehow have to tie their small stories of Yadviga, Mariana Taras to the big story, which is the forced labor in World War II. So then he gave me this huge bibliography to read. And um, but then uh, and so that's what I tried to do is I tried to tell the big story through the the smaller stories. Um, well, that's what I'm going to try and do with this one, which is Chris will probably come up with a better title, but it's got a working title now of uh, Country Mouse, City Mouse, because my father would have been the Country Mouse, yeah, yeah, and my mother the City Mouse. Um, yeah. Well, when that book is published, we'll talk about it. <laughs> okay, for sure. <laughs> okay, Mark. For sure. Well, thank you so much. This has been so, this has been an amazing conversation. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed your book. Really but you're a very, you're a very good interviewer. Well, I'm trying. I'm trying. Well, you're very good. You, <laughs> I can tell by your questions how well you understood the, the themes that run through the book. Um, you got it all. Well, we cannot forget our history. I think that's mm -hmm. the most important message. We cannot forget our history mm -hmm. because too many people perished yeah. so we could do what we're doing now right so okay mm -hmm. mark have a good day okay, take bye. care